The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Listen, would you, uh, would you just, you know, think about this for a minute. If you have one living generation under you, would you put your hand up? One living generation under you. Okay. Now, if you have two living generations under you, keep your hand up. Oh, we're getting fewer. <laughs> Anybody have three living generations under them? I guess we're a young church. <laughs> Over here. Yes. All right. <laughs> How about Four. No, not four. <laughs> we have one with three living generations. That's pretty exciting. You know, generations are important things before God. Uh, he talks about them a lot. In fact, the verse we're going to talk about mostly today that uses the word generations, that word is used 158 times in the scriptures. It's an important word for us to wrestle with and understand. And uh, it's, it's something that God wants us to know. In Psalm 78, we're going to actually be in Psalm 73. But in Psalm 78, I want to read you a few verses because it's pretty cool here. He talks about four and maybe five generations of people here in, in these verses. And he tells us four things that we should be teaching them. But we're going to go real quickly. Verse 5 from Psalm 78. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. And he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that's us, that the next generation, that's our children, might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. So there's a children that are yet unborn, and he wants them to rise up and tell it to their children. So two, two generations not even born yet that he's talking about. And he says that they should tell their children that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God and keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Four, maybe five generations God has got concerned about. And he's telling us that we need to be concerned about similar things. We need to be concerned about the generations that follow after us. It's important. In uh, What do we mean by generations? When we read the Bible... Most of us, when we put our hands up, we were talking about family generations. And, but when we read the Bible, we find that the Bible talks about something else. And there's, there's other generations. I looked up on Google for generations one time, and they have a whole list of them. And I just randomly picked four of them. And there's only one thing consistent about the way they describe generations. They're all about social things. And the only thing consistent about it is they all have baby boomers in it. Uh, nothing else is the same. Uh, the years aren't the same. The names of the generations aren't the same. But generations are important. And, and we need to understand that. In, in, in the book of Numbers, chapter 14 and verse 18, God gives us a warning. We're to teach the children, but God gives us a warning. He said, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers... On the children of the third and fourth generation. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying to you and I who are fathers, to you and I who are parents, that if we don't teach our children, 
if we don't lead them the way God wants them to go, if we don't protect them, if we don't fulfill the trust responsibility that we have to those children in our generations, the damage could go to the third and fourth generation following us. See, it's not just about me. It's not just about my children. But it's about my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and my great-great-grandchildren that I probably will never see. We have a trust relationship with the people in our generations. And it's critical that we understand this. Now in Psalm chapter 73, and it's a fairly long psalm that we're going to go through, so I'm not going to read it all at one time. We'll just read it verse by verse as we go along. In verse 15, where we're going to start, I want to start there because it's the verse that really sets the tone for what we're talking about. And Psalm 73 verse 15 tells us that we live on the fragile edge of a broken trust. It's really fragile. The trust relationship that we have with the generations that follow us. Look what he says here in verse 15 of Psalm 73. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the children or the generation of your children. If I had spoken like this, I would have betrayed them, the generation of your children. We need to talk, and talk for a minute and ask what he's talking about here when he's talking about generations. Generation of your children technically refers to your own children. But in the Bible terms, and if we talk about Bible responsibility, he's talking about those that are realistically, you are, have a position of influence over. So, for example, though you don't have children of your own, if you are a babysitting somebody, or if you're helping out in Harvest Kids or High Five Day Camp, all of a sudden, those become the generation under you, the children of your generation, that you have a responsibility, a trust responsibility that God puts upon you to teach them to know God. So in that terms, put your hand up if you have a generation under you. Now, we got a lot more people here now because we are taking responsibility for people that look to us and trust us to teach them about the things of God. It's those that we have a position of influence. It's a trust generation. It's a trust relationship. What does that mean? It's the idea of a baby who trusts his parents and just does it automatically. He trusts his parents, for example, to be a safe place. When our oldest one was very small, he was, a, he was about three, I think. We were going to a church and we met in a, in a, in a big trailer. And the stairs down from the door were, there was about three stairs down. And there was a rock sidewalk at the bottom of this thing. And so after church one Sunday, I, I walked out the door and down the stairs. And I just got on the sidewalk and I hear Linda shrieking at me. And I turn around and our son has launched himself off the top thing over at my back, fully expecting that I was going to catch him. <laughs> Fortunately, my reflexes were a lot faster than they are now. And I, <laughs> and I saved him from a face plant by about this much on the, on the rocks. He trusted me, even though I wasn't there. I had my back turned. He trusted me. And that's what people do. That's what children do to us. They trust us inherently. 
They expect us to be a safe place for them. They expect us to be ones who will teach them the truth. They want to be like you. They want to imitate you. They expect you then to teach them the truth. They expect you to set them an example of faithfulness and godliness. They expect you to, to, to be that safe place where you speak appropriately, where you behave appropriately, where, where your language is good. The other day I was sitting on, my, on our patio by Cundles Road and going down the valley, into the valley there at Cundles Road by, by the park. And a man and his, and his son were riding their bike down the sidewalk. And, and, the, and the little boy was probably five. He wasn't a very good bike rider. <laughs> he was going down the sidewalk and he was wheeling over onto the grass on this side. And he would go over to the grass on this side. And his, and his dad was behind him on a bike. And from, from the time they started down the hill until I couldn't hear him anymore, all he did was yell at that boy cursing him out in the, in the foulest language you could possibly imagine and saying, if you don't learn to drive your bike on the sidewalk, you're going to, you know. And, and I looked at and I said, that little boy, he has no chance. He has no chance to know what proper behavior is, to know what appropriate language is. He has no hope unless somebody can come who's not his dad or unless somebody can come and get to his dad with the message of Jesus. Our children have confidence and reliance in you. We go down the hall and you see these little ones down there. And they're so cute. And they look to you. And they're trusting you. They're trusting you to be safe. They're trusting you to set an example of faithfulness for them to see. It's a trust relationship that we have. We're protection. It's the expectation of anybody that's in your care. That they will that you will lead them in the way they should go. It's a trust generation that we're talking about. The critical word in this verse, though, is the word betrayed. If I'd spoken thus, I would have betrayed, he says, the children of your generation or the generation of your children. This is the risk of every generational trust. We can fulfill the trust or we can betray the trust. And there's no in the middle ground. We fill it or we betray it. And God has put us here to fill the trust. Betrayal is a harsh word. It's a word that means failure. It means disappointment, let down, deceived, lead them astray. Betrayal comes through the words or the examples that we set. And it sets the tone for their whole life. Years ago, when I was much younger, I was, had a couple come to me who they wanted to be married. And we were doing some marriage counseling. And uh, I was concerned about this couple, so I asked them to do what we called a genogram. A genogram was a drawing of as many generations as they could possibly draw going backwards in their life. And listing every person they knew and telling everything they could tell us about, about those, that, that, those generations, about every person in those generations. And, and a couple of weeks later, when they came back with their genograms, the, 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 the lady was distressed. So I was talking to her, I was asking, what's, what's going on? Well, she was a very interesting lady because she had a grandmother who remembered very clearly two generations before her. And she ended up putting four generations on her genogram, every single person, even the names of the people that they had married. And the thing that distressed her was that in those four generations, every single person 
was divorced. And she was appalled because she thought divorce was really okay. And I was able to say to her, look what you've learned from the generations coming behind you. You've learned that divorce is okay. And divorce is not okay. There's a problem there that you can fix or you need to fix. You see, we can betray the generations that come behind us. And it's a hard word. We fail to give them the tools needed for genuine life. And I'm not talking just about the little tiny ones down there, down the hall there. I'm talking about our, our, our young children, our, our older children. I'm talking about our youth, the teenagers. I'm talking about even our young adults. Have we given them the tools they need to make good, God-honoring, Christ-honoring choices? Have we teach them to, to hold God's word in high esteem so that they live and obey it? Rather than saying, well, you know, I really don't feel like I should do this. I want to do something different. And they twist God's word so that it's saying something different. We teach them by teaching and we teach them by example. Do you hear what I'm saying? Or, or am I clear enough for you? Listen, we believe that God's salvation comes by his divine choice. But God very clearly makes it plain to us that we have a responsibility. It tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for example, that um, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then it says, but how will they call if they have not heard? And how will they hear if they have no one to teach them? And who will teach them if no one is sent out to do that? We have a responsibility in the salvation of God uses us in his sovereign choice to bring salvation to people. It's our trust generation. It's our trust responsibility that God has laid upon us. Do you remember the old psalmist in Psalm 71? Where he prayed to God and he said, God, give me one more generation. One more generation that I could teach to know you, to know your works. Psalm 71, verse 18. Have you ever thought about that? God, give me another generation. Bring more people before me who need to know about Jesus Christ. Put more trust relationships in my place where I can serve you. It's a trust that's never removed from the children of the living God. But the psalmist says here in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, we need to understand what that means. First of all, it means that betrayal never happened. In this case, the betrayal never happened because, because the writer of the psalm, he realized what was happening. It was close. He was on, the, he was on the, the knife edge of disaster. And he knew it wasn't just his problem. If he kept on going in the path that he was going, it would be betrayal for the whole children of his generation and for those who were coming after him. And he didn't like that idea. He didn't like breaking the vial or violating the trust generation that was before him. Now, this is Asaph's story. Asaph is the writer of this psalm. Asaph is, is, is a name perhaps you know. He's, he's written about 10 or 12 other psalms in the Bible. 
Asaph was the chosen by David singer and musician of Israel. And he was also a prophet of God in Israel. So, so this man is, is Jordan Donald and, and Matt Redman and Paul Balash and James McDee all rolled up into one person. He's a spiritual giant is what he is. How does this spiritual giant land on the brink of catastrophe? On the verge of betraying the children of your generation? How does he get there? Well, the answer is he gets there because he has a broken focus. A broken focus on, on, on where he should be looking. The Bible says we should be looking on Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. But Asaph began to look in a different direction. He looked in a different way. The world became really attractive to Asaph. He was looking around him outside the people who were not faithful to God. And he said, wow, this is, this is interesting. And he began to question the validity of faith and the life of a follower of God. It says in verse 2 of this psalm, of Psalm 73, Before, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. This giant of faith, he had almost fallen. He had almost caved in. He almost collapsed and failed in his trust relationships. How did he get there? And that's what he says, and that's what he tells us in the coming, in the coming verses. In verse 3, he says, he was attracted to the world's prosperity. Look what it says. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked around him at the people who were not following God, who were ignoring God. And he says, wow, they got, they got money. They can go on vast on fine holidays. They can do great things. They can, they can do, they got money. I remember doing that. I remember when, when my daughters, our, our twins, we had twin daughters, we, couldn't, we didn't have enough money to send them on a school trip, and they couldn't go on the school trip. And we had to tell them, you can't go. And yet all the rest of their classes, they were getting to go. And I said, what am I doing? They have money, and I don't. And it, 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 it bothers them. They were attracted, Asaph was attracted to the prosperity of the wicked. My daughters, my kids, for many, many years, didn't get to go to the dentist. But other people did, and I didn't like that. We're attracted to the prosperity of the wicked. In verses 4 and 5, he says he was attracted to their trouble-free lives. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't have any trouble. We looked at, he looks at the world around him and all these people, and they, they don't have God, and, and they don't have any trouble. Things are going smooth in their life. They don't have any issues. They don't have any problems. Everything is gone. And, and, and he was attracted to them, attracted to their prosperity, attracted to their trouble-free lives. And the third one, verses 6 to 10, he was attracted to their brazen and careless manner. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. 
See what he's saying there? He's attracted to these callous people who just do whatever they want to do. And if you don't like it, that's your problem. We don't care that you don't like it. We do what we want to do. We're the boss. We take care of ourselves. And if you don't like it, tough. And, and by the way, he says, I'm richer than you are. And I have more pleasure than you are, than you have. I'm better off without God than you are with God. And by the way, guess what? I have more friends than you. I have more friends than you. And guess what? In verse 10, some of those friends were the believers in God. They were attracted to him. And they said, Asaph looked at this and he says, wow, they're prosperous. They don't have any problems. They have this careless manner. They don't have any cares. They don't have any worries. And then he was attracted to their denial of God. Verses 11 and 12. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. See that? They're saying to Asaph, you know, God doesn't know what we do. And if he does know, he obviously doesn't care because he's not doing anything about it. My life is good. And what's yours, Asaph? He was attracted to their fact that or their idea that uh, their life is better without God than Asaph's was with God because they had all these things that were going so good for them. Attracted to their prosperity, attracted to their trouble-free lives, attracted to their brazen, careless manner, attracted to their denial of God. And it creates a doubt in Asaph. Look at verse 13. He says, All in vain... I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain. He says, what's the advantage of faithfulness? What have I gained by being faithful to God? It's all in vain. And then he says in the first half of verse 14, For all day long I have been stricken. In uh, 2015 language, he says, my life sucks. What have I got compared to them? He says, hey, look at my life and, and, and what have I got? And then the last part of verse 14, he says, and I've been rebuked every morning. All I hear is you can't do that. We have rules everywhere. Rules about everything. I can't do that. I can't go here. I can't watch that. I can't. I can't. That's what my life is about. That was Asaph's view of the world. Now let's be honest. Let's be honest. Asaph is a spiritual giant. And he was willing to admit where he got when he looked at the world. What about you? What about you? You are followers of Jesus Christ. Most of you who are here are. But the world is oh so attractive. How many of you like me? You know, I, guess, I don't need you to put your hands up. But how many of you like me have been attracted to the world like this? How many in your heart have said, really? Asaph, Asaph was like that. And he said, he said, uh, 
I'm pretty confident that, that there's many here who are in the same spot even right now. This is a bad place, a bad place to be. In biblical soul care terms, it's a foolish heart. He talks about it in verse 7. You're governed by a foolish heart, he says. At this point, Asaph realizes his bigger problem, more than his personal struggle. It's the trust problem that he has with the generations that are following him. And he says, if I speak from this place, it's betrayal. I will betray the children of your generation. And you, if you're in the same place and trying to guide your children and trying to lead our church children and trying to guide the people around you in the neighborhood, if you're in the same place that Asaph was, you will betray. And I will betray the generation of our children in that place. Listen, I lived a long time. You cannot, you cannot betray, you cannot deceive the younger generations. They will know if you're talking out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. Do you know what that means? I, 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 when I go to Cameroon and I talk, start talking, they're translating, and I say something, and they haven't got the foggiest idea what I just said, and they have a really hard time, a really hard time translating. And sometimes, from my generation, I say something that doesn't make any lot of sense to some of the newer generations. Both sides of the mouth, you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking to these people, you talk out of this side, and you talk to these people, you talk out of this side. Two different things coming out of your mouth. The children see that. You can't deceive them. Um, they hear when you're talking and thinking that nobody's listening. They see how you treat other people and other people's children. They know if you genuinely compare, compare, care or if it's just a show. They have conclusions about your commitment to the church or not. They know if you open your Bible or if you just carry it around. You can't deceive your children. You can't deceive the other generations. They know. They know what's going on. We need to recognize the consequences of this kind of behavior, of this kind of betrayal. You see, our kids face these attractions of the world every day. And guess what? They don't have the maturity that you have. They don't have the knowledge. And many of, the time, many of them don't have the tools to deal with it. It's there every day when they go to school. In their classrooms, outside their classrooms, when they're walking down the street, they see it everywhere. This world that's around them. And too often, we haven't provided them with the essential tools that they need. We have... Uh, we have some people in our church who hunger, who hunger to start a ministry. They will reach out to the at-risk children in our community. And they're, they're working to put a plan together even now. And, and it's a desperate situation that our kids are in. I mean, read some things. Recently on CTV News, they were talking about the gang violence in Surrey, B.C. And... And one of the guys that was talking and interviewing some of these people, he said, when you talk to some of these low-level drug dealers, it's really funny how in some instances the first thing they go to is what they own. That's my Beamer. This is my Rolex. Or did you know that these are $400 jeans? One of the kids that they were talking to who was part of one of these gangs, 
He said, when I was a kid, I used to look as a gangster. I'd be like, he's driving a nice car. He's wearing nice clothes. Got a nice watch. I want that. It's not just at-risk kids, but from poor families getting sucked in. It's more and more the kids that have come from affluent families who have the same draw and pull as the kids doing it out of necessity. Our kids are at risk. My grandchildren are at risk. If we don't give them the tools they need. One guy said, you kind of get lured into it. Why can't I have that? Right? You don't weigh the consequences. Want some statistics? How about drugs? One of six high school age teens are drug dependent. One out of six. 23% of teens use marijuana. 39% by grade 12. How about cutting and self-harm? 3,411 emergency visits for intentional self-harm in 2013-2014 in our area. That doesn't talk about suicide attempts. attempts. 110% increase among girls in cutting in the last five years. Girls from 10 to 17 make up 45% of hospitalizations as a result of cutting in 2013. Remember, these are only the ones who go to the hospital. Suicide in Simcoe County is the second leading cause of deaths for teens. And Stats Canada says in 2013, 30% of those who are 15 to 17 years old were sexually active on a regular basis. And by the time they turn to 18 and 19, it reaches 68%. Our kids are in a desperate place. God has made us responsible to equip the generations of our children to stand strong for Jesus against the attraction of the world. And too often we're failing. We can't just isolate them from the world because someday they need to come and live in the world but not be part of the world. This is a generational trust relationship that God has given to us. Will will you be faithful to that trust? Or will you betray that trust? Asaph was wrestling with this problem in verse 16. He says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He says, I'm wrestling with this. What am I going to (laughs) do? He was on the nice edge of catastrophe of betraying the the children. He tried to bury his attraction without success. He failed. He said, This is impossible. There's a break in his relationship with God that Asaph can't heal. And if you're there, you have to be honest with yourself and nail down the real crisis. You have to admit where you are. That you are the problem and not God. That you are the problem and not the world. That you have a problem that you cannot fix. You have to accept that only God is able to fix your brokenness, to heal your brokenness. And Asaph recognized that he had to have his brokenness healed. And that healing came to Asaph when he comes in verse 17a. He comes to this place and he says, When I went, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Asaph knew there was a problem and he knew how to address it. He goes to the sanctuary of God and he goes to that place where he can see God face to face. 
And he can deal with God face to face. Now Asaph probably went into the, into the temple. But in the temple was where God was. And there, there with God, he, he got down in the face of God in the temple and he dealt with his issues. And so he's not just saying we should go to this place. You know, maybe not just come to church. Although that's a great idea. And it's a place to start. But that's not what he's talking about. Asaph is talking about, about uh, getting into the heart of God. Getting down on your face before God. Opening up his word and living with God every day, every breath. Every moment, crying out to God in prayer, being engaged in His Word, worshiping God, not just when we come here to sing these few songs, but worshiping God throughout your day. Walking with God. Everywhere you go, God walks with you. Walking with God. Working for God. Doing the things that God calls us to do. Being servants of the living God. He went to the sanctuary of God. And he was seeking God's forgiveness and he was seeking God's renewal. And in the sanctuary of the God, Asaph sees three things. First, he sees the world's lies. We go on to read in the last part of verse, of verse 17. Then I discerned their end, he said. He saw the truth about the end result of the world. The truth was not good. They were not in a good place. It was not a good life they were living. He saw the end. The true end of these people who rejected God and walked away from God and did their own things. In verse 18, he says, all was temporary. There's zero stability there. He says, truly you have set them in slippery places. You've made them fall to ruin. They were on the verge of ruin. They were on the, in the point of catastrophe. They just didn't know it. But when he got into the sanctuary of God and he got face to face with God, he began to see the truth about what was happening in the world. In verse 19, he says, How they are destroyed in a moment, utterly swept away by terrors. There's destruction around every corner for them. And they're filled with fear. You know why these guys carry guns? Because they're afraid. They're fearful. Because they know they're on the edge of disaster. They know everything they're doing is only temporary. And there's destruction faces them around the corner. In verse 20, he says, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He says, they're so temporary, it's like a dream. I don't know about you. When I wake up and I've had a dream, usually I say, I have no idea what I dreamed. <laughs> he says, that's what their life is about. It's just a dream. And it's gone. And they're gone. And it's the end, and there's nothing there for them. He sees the truth about the world's lies. But then verse 21 and 22, he sees there's his own sin. <laughs> I don't like this part. But here's what he says. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So he looks around and he recognizes the bitterness of his own heart. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be looking at ourselves and saying, Am I, is there a bitterness in my heart? I don't, I don't know about you, but so many times I come to the end of the day and, and I look at my life and say, Huh, pretty good day. Yeah. How's my sentence today? Hmm, pretty good. I need to be more honest with myself. 
and see the sins in my life and recognize them, that, that they're there. In verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast toward you. A brute beast? That's what it says. When I come to the sanctuary of God, God is going to say, guess what you are, man? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. And your response to me is pretty much out of ignorance. You're a sinner. You know, God needs to show, even to followers of Christ, the ugliness of our sins. And I pray that God will reveal my sin to me so that I can see it and turn away from it because I know I'm far from perfect. Not the person I really want to be. So when we come to the sanctuary of God, we see the world's lies and we see the reality of our own sin and then we see God's salvation. There's two scenarios here for us. One, we're saved. Or two, we're not saved. Now sometimes we're saved and we've got a crack in our relationship with God like Asaph had. But we're saved. We just need to fix the crack. But for those who are not saved, it's time. It's time to be saved. And if you're here today and you haven't been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, don't leave. Don't leave without it. We cannot fulfill the trust that God has put in us if we're living without salvation, without Him. Verses 23 and 24. Look what he says. Look at all the yous in here. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Asaph says, I'm with you, God. I'm in faith, God. I'm trusting you, God. I'm walking with you, God. I'm here. I believe in you. Faith. Uh, and then he says, you hold my right hand. I love that. God's hanging on to my right hand. God's hanging on to your right hand. It's your hand of power. And God's holding it. His power is much greater than mine. And we need to see here, we need to see here Jesus getting between us and our sins. Going to the cross for us, taking it away. That, that brokenness, that sin in our lives, and only God can take it away. And he's holding our hand and he's taking us to the cross with him. So that we can be saved. And our sins washed away. He's holding our right hand. And then he says, you guide me with your counsel. God, you show me the way. You teach me the truths. You show me. We give me your word, God. You put it in my heart. You teach me your way. You guide me with your counsel. You show me the kind of person I should be. You show me the life that I should live. The life that I should live with him. He's given us his word. His counsel to guide us. And then he says, And afterward, you will receive me to glory. At the end of my day, God, what are you going to do? You're going to take me home. I'm going to go be with Jesus. How can that be better than that? God saves us. He's going to take us out of this place. When we've fulfilled our relationship traps, he's going to take us home to be with him. <laughs> I like that. That's the best part of this whole song. I get to go to be with God in glory. <laughs> cool. He saves me. But it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't committed to him in faith in Jesus Christ, you're not going to glory yet. Only God can take you there. Verses 25 to 27, Asaph says there is no other option. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This earthly life is about God, not about me. It's not about my wants. It's God's plan. God's going to give me a new heart. But he may not change my circumstances. You see, it's that attraction to the world that wants God to change the circumstances of my life. But if he changes the circumstances of my life, I'm just going to get into another kind of circumstance that I probably don't like. God's not about changing the circumstances of our life. He's about changing our hearts and giving us a new heart. And I'm so glad he did that for me. Verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, God will never fail me. He will never fail me. My own self, I'll fail me over and over again. But God will never fail me. He is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever, he says. I'm a failure. God, God wins. He gives me victory. And then there's a warning in verse 27, a warning. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You don't have faith in God. You don't maintain your trust in Him. You don't cling to Him. That's not a good result that God has there for you. You'll perish. You'll perish in unfaithfulness, separated from God for all eternity. But He gives confidence. Like Asaph, the only chance we have to escape the attraction of the world and all the horrific outcomes to get is to get into a living, focused relationship with God. And coming to verse 28, he says in, verse, in the first, first part of that, verse 28, he says, But for me it is good to be near God. <laughs> good to be near God. No matter what the circumstances of my life, no matter how difficult it is I'm facing, it's good to be near God. He gives me peace. He gives me hope. He gives me joy that's unspeakable. It's good to be near God, no matter the circumstances that I face. And then he says, I have made the Lord God my refuge. I live in safety in him. He governs my behavior. He governs my thinking. He strengthens my heart. He purifies it. He never fails in his trust relationship with me. God never fails his trust relationship with me. He saves me to be with him forever. And to be in his life. And then it says that I may tell all your works. See the change? In verse 15, Asaph can't talk. Because if he does, he will betray. But now, now he says in the sanctuary of God, he says, I can speak to the generation of your children without the risk of betraying them. I can tell them about Jesus. Did Asaph get it right? You bet he did. When they come out of Babylon, you know, several hundred years later to build the new temple, guess what? Asaph's descendants are the singers and musicians of Israel in the new temple, just like they were before. You see, it's only here, only here in the presence of God that I will fulfill my trust relationships 
to the following generation. Only here am I able to repair the brokenness of my, of my trust betrayals. Did you remember? Did you see what Brian said? I had to go. I had to write a letter. I had to write a letter and confess my sin. I had to go to my children and confess my sin. I needed to go to my youngest son. I've told you about him before. I needed to go, I needed to go and I did. And I went and sat down with him by himself, Linda and I and him. And I confessed my sin and my failure and asked him for forgiveness. That's not easy to do. But you need to do that if you've broken a trust relationship. It's only in this vital living relationship with God that I will be able to provide the generations that follow me with the essential tools to live by faith in Jesus Christ. Are you in the sanctuary of God? Have you been saved? Are you ready to build and restore your trust relationships? They depend on you. Will you be dependable? I can't say this enough. You fulfill the trust relationships to the succeeding generations only when you're authentically living with Jesus with a heart purified by him. I wonder if you noticed that I left out one verse. I left out verse 1. And verse 1 is the beginning of the psalm, but it's really the end of the story. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Let's pray. Father, you have, you have laid upon us a burden, a burden of a trust relationship with those who come after us. Not just our own children or our own grandchildren, but all the children in this place, in our neighborhoods, wherever we go. The young adults, the youth, those who look to us and seek from us leadership and seek from us truth and seek to us to see in us behavior that is genuine and consistent with the life of God. God, we can't do that except that you do it in us. We need you, Father. Come into our hearts. Restore our relationship with you. Make it strong so that we can fulfill the trust relationships that you set before us that we can genuinely be the people of the living God that you called us to be and that we can bring you honor and glory in our life and we can say, truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart and know that you have made us pure in heart and we can be like Jesus and you will take us to be with him one day to the glory and praise of your great name. It's about you, Father. It's about you, Jesus. And we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.